to Composing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Composing Myself. This week, Dave and I are joined by a composer described by the New York Times as one of the most consistently inventive, surprising composers now working in New York. Welcome, Missy Mazzoli. Thank you for having me. We we often start, in fact, we always start this conversation um, with, with a, 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 a question. Basically, can you remember, what, what was your first musical memory what was the first musical experience when you heard something that got kind of into your head under your skin and made you go wow yeah um it's interesting because I, I was actually just talking about this last night there was a room full of teeth concert and they had everyone get up and say their first memory of hearing uh, of singing from their youth and I panicked because I come from a, a like a totally non-musical family and so there were no, everyone else was like, oh, my mother sang me lullabies. And I'm like, uh-uh, no, no singing. No singing from my mom, my dad, like back generations. Like there's there's very little music in the household. And the music that was there was like, um, you know, comp- like classical music's greatest hits. We had like one compilation CD. But that, so that quite honestly was the music that grabbed me. It was like all the things that we, um, you know, from inside the field might think of as like, um, like just very, very popular classical music, you know, so Beethoven's Ninth, Moonlight Sonata, like all all the things that, you know, um, are on these, like on these CDs. So those were my first memories. And then I, I just, but I fell in love with that music. And I think that it's, it's super popular for a reason. And I think it grabs people and um, I'm okay with that. <laughs> so I think that like, yeah, listening to like the one classical music CD and oh, my, we also had like the life of Beethoven on cassette tape for some reason. I don't know how that ended up in our house because it, it, it like, did not belong there. But I listened to that obsessively um, and was obsessed with Beethoven. Not, you know, just kind of because he was the one composer in my, in my life that happened to like find his way into my life. So very, very strange early, early musical time. Did, did they have any sort of pop music as well or, you know, show tunes or was, was it just, just that classical music? It, <laughs> um, I don't think my parents will hear this, so it's okay. For, but they <laughs> did not have good taste in music either. I mean, it was, it was a lot of like, I mean, it's stuff that I, that I could come to love, like, um, like Neil Diamond, um, you know, and, uh, just like a lot of like 70s. I know it's like, I nothing wrong with that. it was like a lot of 70s pop and um, actually Janis Joplin. My mom loved Janis Joplin. So yeah, my parents had a f- habit of listening to country music on a Sunday morning. So I've grown mm-hmm. up with a lifelong love of John Denver and I'm coming out as a John Denver fan live on this podcast with one of the most exciting composers in the world. So that's. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> I love that though. I, I just, I feel like. There's so much unnecessary sort of hiding of our true influences. And mm-hmm. like again, this stuff is popular for a reason because it, it, it reaches out and grabs like millions and millions of people. So why should we be like 
pretend to be above that. I don't know. I, I just, I've really come out like as, you know, loving, like the other thing I loved as a, as a kid were like all these eighties music videos. So like all the epic guns and roses, um, you know, like Motley Crue, like all these like, you know, bands that, um, had these epic music videos and were really emotional and, and, and over totally, totally over the top. And we see it as maybe campy now, but I loved it. And as a teenager and as a younger, like as a, you know, pre-teenager, that, that was the stuff that really caught my imagination. So having sort of had a sort of baptism of Beethoven, when did you first start making music, playing music or, you know, what, you know, so you've got this big symphonic earworm going on with a bit of Janis Joplin. What next? Yeah, well, I mean, I started, my parents, we did have a piano in the house, kind of miraculously. They got it at a flea market um, just because they felt that every house should have a piano. Um, and so I started playing when I was about seven and immediately started writing. So from the, the time I was playing, I was making up my own music. And I was, I went in, you know, for lessons and I would always show stuff that I wrote. And, um, you know, and because I was so captivated by classical music, um, you know, I, I thought whatever those people are doing, that's what I want to do. And I, I remember my piano teacher was like, well, they're composers. And I was like, well, then I'm going to be a composer, <laughs> you know, really before I'd written anything significant or even before I'd written anything down or knew how to write anything down. Um, and I think that when you're young, like it's easy to just obsess about things, especially if like me, you grew up in a very rural, isolated um, area that, you know, where there was not, we were not like going to see orchestras all the time. You know, I was like well into my teens before I saw a professional orchestra. Um, and I was 19 before I saw, when I saw my first opera. Um, so, you know, the piano and playing music was my, was my way into it. And, um, writing just felt like something I was supposed to do as part of that. Were you like that as a as a as a young person, as a girl? Did did you were you the sort of person that had colouring books and made things and wrote stories? Was it natural to make things? And so therefore if you're gonna play music, you might as well make some music. Definitely. Yeah. You know, it it put making things, you know, being creative, it put the world in order for me. Um and that was something that I really needed. You know, I felt uh, to to my in my since the world was very chaotic and hard to understand and um you know being able to make something and produce something felt like i was putting the world in order and um so you know like my i would write elaborate plays for my sister and i to act out and then we would film them with like the big um like shoulder camcorder of like the <laughs> early 90s and um you know i just i knew that being something i needed to do something creative as a job and i think composing um, was a natural fit because it allows you to be creative in all these different ways. Um, so, you know, you can be into poetry and writing and philosophy and visual art and theater and like composing is a way to do all of that at the same time. Yeah, you mentioned you grew up in quite a rural place. Where did you grow up? I, I grew up in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, which now it's more suburban. Um, and it's not that far from Philadelphia, but it might as well have been in the middle of nowhere because um, we really didn't leave. Um, we would go to the, the Jersey Shore once a year, and that was like our big 
escape from Pennsylvania. <laughs> and then mm. even and looking back, it's like we were so close to New York. We were so close to Philadelphia. And we could have been going all the time. And um, eventually, you know, we, we did like my I remember my grandmother taking me to see the Philadelphia Orchestra once. Um, so like there, mm. it was kind of accessible, but, you know, we just my family just didn't do it. And then I suppose the sort of sequential question from that is, so your grandmother took you to see the Philadelphia Orchestra. When did you start consuming other art forms as opposed to just creating your own music and your own stories or whatever? Yeah, you know, um, I feel like um, there were a couple of random things that sort of... Um, like brought me into the wider world of, of art, you know, but, but most of that happened when I was in college. Most of that happened, you know, when I was in university, like at, from 17 onward, um, I went to school in Boston. And so obviously had access to a much wider range of, of influences. Um, but even a little bit before that, I, I did, I, when I was about, when I was 16, like early 17, um, became involved in the riot girl scene in Philadelphia. Um, so like with around bands like Bikini Kill and, um, you know, La Tigra and all, all these bands that are much less well known than those two. And were you know, these like Riot girl punk bands um, coming out of Philadelphia. Um, that was really important to me, too. And it was this really it was like a female empowerment um, kind of thing. And it would have these Riot girl conventions in, in Philadelphia. And they were always, I remember they were always like in somebody's kitchen and, um, and like, you know, 200 like teenage, um, you know, young people would like pack into these houses and like listen to bands and like they would, you would share zines and stuff. So that community weirdly enough, like gave me, was a really important outlet for me. Um, you know, not so much in terms of classical music, but in terms of just self-expression and making your own stuff and building things from the ground up. Um, everyone had a band, everyone had a zine, everyone start, was, was starting clubs, everyone, you know, it was just a very sort of DIY community. Yeah, when I was sort of 12, 13, 14, punk rock happened in the UK and practically everybody who went through punk rock and there was probably only a few hundred people in the country who were really punk rockers. They right. all ended up film directors or magazine editors or writers or some successful musicians as well, yeah. That kind of do-it-yourself yeah. ethos, why can't I do it, is a, is a brilliant right. scene to be part of. Yeah, When you went to college, did, did you, were you doing music straight away or, or, or did you? Yeah, that was, yeah, from the beginning. And, and what instruments did you play at that point? I've always just played piano, that's it, um, and then increasingly got involved in electronic music, um, but still, you know, just keyboards, synthesizers, piano. One of the pleasures of doing these interviews is I spend the day listening to the music of the person we're about to talk to. And early yeah. on, I'd listened to the two Victoire albums, and particularly Vespers. I really enjoyed that, that album. But then Thank you. There, has, there doesn't seem to have been much in the last three or four years. It, it, is, is there more to come? Or? You know, it's, um, it, a couple things happened. You know, after we made the Vespers album in 2015, um, I was being increasingly sucked into the opera world. Um, and that, you know, even the smallest opera takes years and it was just like this all consuming thing. And it was this really, um, just being involved in theater was really compelling for me. And I, I wanted to focus my energy on that. 
Um, and then at the same time, a bunch of band members moved away. And that, that was a band that was so centered on those people that it wasn't like I could just hire other people, I realized. Um, it was so much about their personalities and their, their gifts. And the music was really written for them. Um, so I still work with all of them individually. Like I see them all, the, the ones who still live in New York, I see them all the time. Um, and, uh, I still collaborate with, um, with virtually all of them in different ways, but I really hope we can have like a reunion tour. <laughs> um, it's been, well, it's been like 12 years since our first album, but maybe we'll do like a 10 year Vespers reunion tour or something. That'd be fun. Did you perform? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I still perform and it's very, it's a very important part of, of, of the whole constellation of jobs that I have currently, which it just seems to be an increasing number. Um, but performing is very important. It's like, for me, performing is like completing a cycle. Um, and it's a release that you don't get in other ways as a composer. So when I'm performing it in front of someone and I'm feeling the energy from the audience and the reaction of the audience, it's like, oh, the cycle is complete. You know, I've written this thing. I've practiced it. I've performed it. People are responding. Now I can move on. Um, and it's a release you don't get even like when an opera is performed, I'm sitting in the audience. That That's also a kind of release, but it's very different. So I think, I think performing is, will always be a really important part of what I do, even though they're always going to be better pianists than me, seriously. Like, um, but I'm, I feel like I can bring something to my own work that other people can't. And was um, Victoire the first sort of performing group that you made work for? Was that the, the sort of, the, if you like, the launch of the composing for other people apart from yourself? No, you know, Victoire, I started after, after grad school um, in my first year in New York. So I was already writing for... Um, you know, when I was in grad school at Yale, I was writing for groups there. I was starting to write for my friends' ensembles. I was even starting to get um, a few commissions early on. Um, and But there was something missing, and that, that was community in, in mm -hmm. New York City. And I, I was like, I need something that is a performing outlet. I need to have a community of musicians where we're um, making things together. Um, and I need a sort of like test kitchen where I can try out mm. ideas that I can't try out on a string quartet who has like two rehearsals and like has never met me before. Um, so it became a really important for a lot of different reasons. And also I wanted, I, you know, I was at that point I moved to New York in 2006 and I was friends with all these people in bands, um, you know, of varying levels of success, you know, <laughs> like, you know, from like the people in the national to people who are just like would form a band for a weekend and play it, you know, in someone's loft. Um, but that had an energy that I really wanted. Mm. Um, I want, and I also wanted to tour. I wanted to make records. I wanted to have rehearsals. I wanted to put on my own shows where I was choosing the other groups. Um, and those are things that bands did. Those yeah. were things that composers did. Um, so Victoire really um, served that purpose and allowed me to travel the world presenting my music on my terms mm. instead of waiting to be like slotted into a program by somebody else. And I think that's a really brave and unique thing for composers to do. You know, there are a few composers. You know, I remember working with Steve Martland in the UK, mm -hmm. you know, the Steve Martland band. And then Steve Reich had his ensemble, Philip Glass's head. You had Victoire. And um, just going back to what you were saying earlier about commissions, what was your first commission? When, when, who, when was the first time you got paid to write a piece of music? 
Yes, first money um, was uh, 2005, um, a group called Present Music in Milwaukee. Um, I have no idea how um, their director, Kevin Stahlheim, I have no idea how he found me or why he felt that I was worth giving money to, but I was like, this is a miracle. I think it was like $5,000, which to me was like, I'm like, I could just live on off this for the rest of my life. <laughs> it just felt like this insurmountable amount of money. And um, I'm eternally grateful and um, ended up writing a string trio for them that I still stand by. I still really like it. I get teased for it, but I'm quite process driven. Um, I like to, you know, I get, I have lots of routines and I'm very, I'm very sort of organized. Do you have a particular sort of uh, way of going about composing? Do you have a, like a particular place or, or time of day or do you record every day? Do you use certain equipment? Well, what, what's, how, how do you, how do you go about it? Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm like sitting at my desk right now and um, I have, I, I had this friend make me a desk finally and, and it has a piano that you can like pull out. Um, so I, it's kind of like if I'm, I can be checking my email and have an idea and then just pull out the piano and play it. That's been really great. And I, um, yeah, so I, but routine is hard. Like I, I think I do try to write every day and I think that that's very important, even if it's just for like 10 minutes. Um, Cause I feel that that, is like a symbol to myself that this is my purpose in life and this is um, what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is what I love. And so I'm going to find time to do it every day. But um, consistency is, is, has out the window. I've never had a consistent routine where I wake up at seven and then work for four hours. Like I just, there's, it's, it's just not practical for me given all the other jobs that I do, you know, out of necessity and out of love. <laughs> um you know, and, and for years I had um, really like weird day jobs, you know, some of which were not musical at all. And so you have to like I worked at a grocery store when I first moved to New York and they had to fit in composing around these shifts. So I was composing, you know, for an hour and a half every night. That was it. And um, uh, really not ideal. <laughs> but but so I, I just I try to work my new thing is that I'm really obsessed with is like working in 90 minute chunks, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a reasonable thing where I can do like a little bit in the morning and then have a million meetings, then do another one in the afternoon. Then maybe right before I go to bed, I can fit in an, a magical third chunk of time. Um, well, but, that, but that's, there's quite a lot of science behind that. That's the sort of maximum optimum concentration length for most people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I actually read a couple of books about it and then I, because I'm so process driven, I went and reorganized all of my um, diary into 90, 90 minute chunks and then chunks of times where you're, you're not concentrating so much. But when you really want to get something done, apparently that's the best length of time mm -hmm. on average for most people. Yeah. It's awesome. I've got a slightly existential question, I suppose. Why do you write music? I think a, a bunch of, a bunch of reasons. Um, but I do think personally for me, um, it's the, the same reason that I started writing music as a child was to put the world in order for myself. 
<clears throat> and increasingly, you know, it, that's also a way to connect with people. So I'm, you know, um, I create work about things. Usually a lot of my work is about people, about human stories, human dramas, even the non-operatic, non-vocal works are about these very human um, <clears throat> stories. So, um, and so that's a way of connecting with people too. I find that, that it's, it's a way to like draw people in that I'm, you know, telling a story and, and it has a beginning, a middle and an end. And I'm presenting it in order for them. And that's, mm. Um, you know, something that people need, I think, and people look for in art um, yeah. and to be presented with an idea in a new and surprising way that also draws you in with something familiar. So that that's um, in, in a very like cellular level, why I write and why I need to write every day. It's, it's like an exercise. It's an obsession. It's a habit. Um, and then also, you know, it, it's, it's, has given me music has given me like everything good in my life. You know, it's given me my community, my friends. It allows me to travel the world. I think it's the best job in the world. Um, you know, and lately, you know, the work I've been doing with my organization Luna Lab, which is, you know, a mentorship program for young um, female non-binary gender non-conforming composers who are super young, like 13 to 18. And so watching them sort of just not only develop their musical talent, but using that as an opportunity to connect with their peers, connect with other people and make sense of the world in an increasingly chaotic world. Like that's really amazing. So, and so music has given me all of that. What, what, what is the most useful thing that you can, you can do to, I know you're helping and, and mentoring and various things. What's the most useful help that you think you can provide young composers? Well, so um, mentorship, you know, which is a broad, broad term, but, you know, connecting these young people with um, a mentor who has some of their shared life experience and to connect them with a mentor young, you know, like I, I was in my teens, um, my late, I was in college before I met a living composer and I was in my twenties before I met a living female composer. And that's too late. It's That's too late to like, be swimming around in the dark and not seeing yourself reflected in the professionals in the field you want to pursue. So um, with Luna Lab, we're able to speed up that process and provide support at the time when people are making the decision to be musicians. So like these are decisions we make when we're like, you know, 13, 14, 15. And if you're an instrumentalist, probably when you're like four or five, <laughs> um, if you want to be like a soloist, like the, I feel like those decisions are made um, so young and so I feel like if we can catch composers and particularly young female and non-binary composers who don't aren't, don't see themselves reflected as much on like orchestra programs or in opera seasons, um, that, that, that can be super powerful. And it, it can just be one person like that is enough to really change someone's life. And I experienced this like when I met Meredith Monk, I consider her my mentor and um my life changed when I met her because I was like, oh, all of a sudden I can see a way forward. And also people like Kaya Sariaho, Julia Wolf, like, um, it, you know, I've had amazing male teachers who are nothing like me and they're fantastic and I love them. But there was something different about being able to see my experience in these, um, these women. So, um, yeah, so I just, Ellen Reed and I, Ellen is the co-founder, you know, we wanted to provide that for people um, at that crucial time in their teens. 
And, and is this in person or do you use the technology that we're using now, the, the Zooms? and? It's all online. Um, the mentorship portion is like throughout the year, um, these young people who are selected through an application process um, you know, meet with our mentors every two weeks um, for a lesson. It's all online. Even pre-pandemic, we were online because we wanted it to make it accessible to people, mm-hmm. um, even people who are living in, in rural areas. You know, Ellen grew up in rural Tennessee. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. Like, we could not travel to a city to have composition lessons. Um, so we, even if you live in New York, even if you live next door to me, like, you're you're still, it's still online. And then we bring everyone to New York for a big festival in the spring. And how, do, do, how does the, the, the sort of coaching, the teaching work? Do they bring a piece and you critique it and suggest things or, or how does it work? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the ultimate goal, like by the end of the nine months of mentorship, they're, they're supposed to produce a piece that we then perform. And we have professional musicians perform and record it in New York. Um, so they're working on that. Um, the initial lessons are really about technique, you know, notation, just, you know, all just discovering a compositional voice, doing listening assignments, and then it's more geared towards like writing this piece that has to be performed in like June every year. And I think one of the lovely outputs of Lunar Lab, apart from the ongoing mentorship, is the fact that each year a composer has the opportunity to have a piece published by your publisher. And I feel that's a wonderful means through which we can sort of help support the the future generations of female composers. Mm -hmm. It's really very important to us. Now, we can't really talk to you without mentioning opera. You know, it would be a huge omission to um, not go into that. And, you know, what, five operas? I'm working on my fifth. You're working on the fifth, Lincoln on the Bardo, which will be at the Metropolitan Opera in a few years. Um, So I wanted to just go into the sort of process, Mm -hmm. the subject of collaboration. How do you choose your collaborators? I mean, particularly uh, Royce, your um, consistent librettist. How did that happen? That's such a special partnership for me. It's like one of the, probably the most significant collaboration of my life. You know, I mean, we are not only collaborators, but we're best friends. So we we talk every day, whether it's about music or not, usually not. and we have he's written every opera with me um and we met because i'd gone to see a a presentation of works that he had written with the composer david t little and it was Mm -hmm. an initial presentation of their opera dog days Mm. and i just i was like my, my mind was blown i was like this is funny this is contemporary this feels like great theater but it is also inherently singable text And I don't even know if I can describe like what makes something inherently singable, but Royce knows. And he has a really amazing sense of structure and drama and um, it's great. And, And I think that the key of our collaboration is flexibility. So I can, because we talk all the time and because we're such good friends, I can go to him and be like, okay, this does not work. And I I just can't figure out what to do in this moment. Um, And so, and, and I, you know, what else do you have here? And he's not offended by that at all. He's not precious. And similarly, musically, like if I've written something that is just dragging the momentum down, he'll be like, 
we should consider maybe something else. And and I'm not offended. Like we have to, we can't, we don't, neither of us puts ourselves before the work. Um, Mm -hmm. We're always putting the success of the work above any particular attachment to any one line or melody or, you know, or the music and words as a whole. Attached to that, I suppose, is the, how do you choose your subject matter? I have things that I'm, certain things that I keep coming back to. And now have that it's my, I'm working on my fifth opera, I can see patterns. Um, you know, at the core of, I think, each of my four operas before Lincoln and the Bardo, there was, um, you know, a woman at the center who was mm-hmm. in an extreme situation and who was forced to do something that um, broke her out of the prescribed identity that she was given, either by herself or by society or culturally. And, um, and, and so there, there's that, there's also, I, I'm sort of, I'm attracted to sort of darker stories that maybe don't have a big happy ending or a traditional sense of redemption at the end. But um you know, and I just, I don't know, I find the darker stuff easier to work on for like four years. I feel like if you're, if you're writing a comedy, like after, and you're writing an opera, that's a comedy, like after three years of writing, is it still funny? Like, how do you even know? So I, I just, that's not in me to probably ever write a comedy. Um, but I have infinite respect for people who can, who can pull that off. Um, so yeah, I've seen those, those patterns. Um, mm. yeah. And I'm, I'm just interested in, in, people and, and, and in presenting sort of real people on all their complexity. And, and that, that's, a, that's an extremely broad thing, but I don't think that not all composers are interested in that. And that's, well, that's totally great, you know? I think it is great. And I think, you know, I remember when the idea of breaking the waves was based on the, well, the Lars von Trier film is the thing that was mainly in my mind, the darkness of that uh, coming down the pipe as an opera that Missy was going to write. I was thinking... Oh my God! A, what a fantastic <laughs> idea! And B, how the hell is she going to do that? And yeah. you did it. And how did you do it? I mean, did you? That's how did you do it? Well, that was a really in- intense experience because I had not before that. I had just written "Song from the Uproar," which was you know seventy-minute chamber work, monodrama, mm. smaller in every single way. Um, and all of a sudden breaking the waves was like, you know, chamber orchestra, men's chorus, nine principles. It was just like, and I, but I knew it just felt like the perfect story for me to tell at that time. And I, I felt confident that I could bring something to the story that was not in the film. Yeah. Just by virtue of it being an opera, by virtue of all the, the, the layers that I have at my disposal as a composer that Von Trier didn't have as a filmmaker, um, and, and that really propelled me forward. And, and, the, and it was a story that kept on feeding me. You know, I kept finding new layers of psychological complexity and depth and relevance in Bess's story. And I still am, you know, having, mm. having lived with this story for like 10 years now. Um, and, but it was, I remember I did have a crisis, like, a, you know, a year and a half in, you know, because I remember sitting with Royce at a diner and I'll just be honest and like crying my eyes out because I was just like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. It was like the middle of winter. It was like bleak <laughs> New York. Like no one, like I, I was just like, I've been working on this for a year and a half. And what if it's terrible? Like I'm the only one who's heard this music. And what if I'm totally on the wrong path and I will have wasted 
you know, years of my life doing something that doesn't work. And that risk felt so huge. I mean, I was like, you know, 33 and I was just like, I don't know. There's no proof that I can pull this off. So like, who's to say that it's going to work at all. Mm. Um, and he was great. He was like, you can, you can do this. Okay. Take a deep breath. Okay. You have to eat something. Like he was just like a really <laughs> good friend in that moment. And, um, and now it's just, and, and the piece was just like a, a life changing experience that, that, that I can pretty confidently say worked. I'm so relieved that I remember going up on stage opening night and like feeling the audience reaction. I'm like, Oh, thank God it worked. You know, just like this tremendous, huge relief at feeling like I had done what I set out to do. Um, and then since then it's been a lot easier because I can look back and be like, no, I know how to do this. I know how to do this. And having one opera under your belt is a huge confidence booster and um, has allowed me to take risks in the, in the subsequent works. So you're just back from the premiere of The Listeners in yes. Norway, which is your most recent work. Um, and that came after quite a bleak period for the world. You know, mm-hmm. when, you know during the pandemic, of course, uh, this piece was supposed to have been performed and it was on, it was off. How was that for you? You know, uh, it was frustrating, but, you know, after a while, you you just, during the pandemic, became grateful that things were not canceled. Like, I did have a few works canceled, like um, the the New York premiere of, or not premiere, but the premiere of the, um, we were going to do Breaking the Waves with the yeah. Met Orchestra band, it was going to be like this big thing, and then that was just canceled. And, um, and so, you know, when... Um, the Norwegian National Opera was like, oh, we're going to delay this by a year. I was like, cool, just don't say the word cancel and I'm totally fine. (laughs) And Royce and I, like our perspective for um, our patience grew and it was just like, as long as it's not canceled, we can, we can wait. It's fine. It's fine. Um, And in retrospect, it didn't feel like it was, it was, it premiered a year and a half later than it was originally scheduled for. And I was able to take that time and like work on the orchestration in a slow way. And I think the piece elevated was elevated because of that extra time so um pandemic is a huge tragedy but you know the the tiniest of silver linings for me personally was just the gift of time to work on that could i I just ask you the story of that one because with Mm -hmm. the other operas it was based on someone's life or or a a book or a short story Mm -hmm. i couldn't find i couldn't find any basis for the listeners, did that was that organic? Did that come out of purely out of your head, or was that based on a story? So, so it had again because the pandemic had a had an interesting genesis. But um, Royce and I worked with the Canadian playwright Jordan Tannehill, who is brilliant, extremely prolific. Um, you know, uh, lives in London actually, but um, it was you know born in Toronto, and um, we went to him and said. Um, you know, we'd like you to help us create a story for our, our next opera. Um, and the challenge that we said to him was like, what would you write for something that has to be an opera first? You know, because so much of opera is adaptation and historically has been adaptation, even if the opera becomes more famous than the original source. And um, but I thought, you know, this can't be opera's greatest destiny. And I, I had just come out of doing two adaptations. And I was like, I really want to try to do something that has to be told as an opera first. Um, so he was really heroic and like went away and then came back with like four ideas. 
um, for stories. And one of them was the listeners. And I think it was like two paragraphs out- outlining the story. Um, and the story in a nutshell is a, a woman in a suburban Southwest town hears a mysterious noise um, and she's plagued by it. And she, it's messing with her home life. She can't sleep. She loses her job. Um, she finds a self-help group in the community run by a very charismatic man named Howard Bard um, joins the self-help group and increasingly takes on cult-like dimensions um, and becomes, you know, more insulated and um, these rituals become more involved. And then um, it's revealed, you know, that Howard doesn't even hear the sound and that he's been, he's manipulating all these people and taking advantage of their vulnerability. And in the end, she rises up, kicks him out, takes over the cult. Um, so, uh, I, I just thought that was a great idea. Mm. I, I really liked the other ones. I read all the stories mm-hmm. around them. And I thought, oh, that's a good story about the Explorer. And, and I know it's the um, Van Trier's film. But this one, I just went, wow, I, I, I want to know what happens next, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I, I do feel like there's a certain like vividness, a certain strength to it that because it was a story originally written for an opera, you know? And, um, and so we were able to sit down with Jordan and we would have these conversations that were very, um, far reaching. You know, I was like, I, I like stories about women in impossible situations. I like stories about middle-aged women who do something unexpected. I like the American Southwest. I like stories about cults. And I feel like a cult could really be an operatic thing because you have this Mm. chorus of people who could be a cult and they're used to doing things together. (laughs) Um, and then, he, you know, sort of, I think, took, I had other ideas that didn't make it into this. I was like, I'm really interested in stories about dictators, you know, but that kind of was morphed into this idea of the charismatic leader. Um, but really it is from, that. It, it, so Royce and I were able to throw, you know, spaghetti against the wall and um, say whatever we want. But this, the, it was really a product of Jordan's imagination. And um, so he is the author of this story, but its genesis was from this prompt of like what needs to be an opera. Um, and he eventually, he actually turned it into a book, um, which has been doing really well. Um, and because of pandemic delays, you know, the book actually came out before the opera. So everyone's like, oh, you based this opera on Jordan's book. And it's like, no, it's like, it was actually the other way around, but it's fine. You know, I, I, I think that like, I, I, I want, I want it, the story to go far and wide and I want Jordan's writing to go everywhere. So I'm happy about it. Did you have any particular charismatic leader in mind when when um, you were writing it? I can't think of anyone particular. <laughs> no, you know it's like uh, it, um, it's just so it's it's almost it's it's funny because it's like these what I noticed in doing my research about cults. Um, and there's, again, we're obsessed with this. There's no shortage of cult documentaries like on Netflix right now. So there's like Going Clear mm-hmm. about Scientology. There's Wild Wild Country about the Rajneeshis. There's a great documentary called Holy Hell about the Buddhafield cult in California. Um, the Vow, which is about Nixium in upstate New York. Like I could go on and on and on. There's so many of, the, of these. And um, in watching them, I noticed that they all have the same pattern. You know, where it's like someone, usually a man, you know, 99% run, run by um, a very charismatic man um, who ends up, you know, manipulating people. Usually there's some sort of like sexual part of it where people feel betrayed. Um, and uh, he, there's usually a, a someone who's like the number two uh, in command. 
um, who gets power from being from their proximity to power. And then the the fall of these cults is always very fast. You know, it's like the house of cards falls very quickly once someone in the cult is like, no, this guy sucks, you know, and like this, he's manipulating us or she is manipulating us. And um, and then everyone kind of like wakes up and it's like, no, you, you know, you're right. This is bad. And so if things fall apart very fast. So just seeing that pattern over and over again, not only with cults, but in society, um, really made me want to bring it to life on the stage. And sometimes our cult leader, Howard, seems like a caricature, but he's everything he said is drawn from life. Whoa. Terrifying. What, what's the, are you able to say what the new opera is, is about? Yeah, so it's um, the new opera for the Met is uh, an adaptation back to adaptation, but it's an adaptation of the um, the book Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders, um, and I'm you know like halfway through writing the music. Will you work on many things at the same time, or, or do you tend to work obsessively and uh, exclusively on that, and then when you do that, you'll work on something else when you finish that? Um, I really just work obsessively on one thing at a time. Um, as much as I can, yeah. Because I think it's interesting for me, at least, that the, um, the the sort of big Thanksgiving dinner, if you like, of writing an opera, you know, where's the sorbet? What's the sorbet that, you know, and you popped <laughs> on a violin concerto for Jenny yeah. Coe, the, you know, you're the mead composer in residence with Chicago Symphony Orchestra, you know, are your days longer than everybody else's? <laughs> no, I, I'm really, like... I wish I, I, yeah, I feel like I would, I need an extra day just to sleep lately, but um, no, and I, I really do. I do do one thing at a time. Um, and, you know, um, I'm always just writing one thing at a time. So it's easy to kind of dive back into that. And then um, I have my teaching that I, that I do and then running Luna lab. And then those are, those three things are kind of my big priorities every day. And when do you think, I, I think, I always find it's interesting for other people not in the business, you know, when will you have to finish the opera? How far before the opera goes on stage will it have to be completed? Um, well, we have, uh, we have a workshop like two years, a year from now, which is two years before the premiere. Yeah. So that feels good. You know, it's like a piano vocal workshop. So after in a year, the piano version of the opera will be done, the first draft of it. And then I'll be able to revise that and orchestrate it over the next seven months or something. And then, um, yeah. And then, and then it, I don't know, then it happens. <laughs> but what, what, from getting the commission to mm-hmm. going on stage, what, what's been your typical length of the cycle to create an opera? It, you know, it really varies, but it's usually like three years-ish. You know, again, with the pandemic, it's like I can't gauge like what time is anymore. <laughs> um, but it generally takes three years like from, you know, well, there's like the pitching the idea, getting the rights can add a lot of time. Um, certainly like working out the rights for a big, you know, very well-known book like Lincoln and the Bardo took just mm. takes a lot of time. Um and and then, like, from the time I start writing, it's usually three years before the premiere. And who, who gets those rights? Do, do you get those rights? Do, do, the, um, do the person doing the commissioning have to clear all of that? Um, 
It's sort of, well, it varies project to project. Um, you know, for the Met, you know, this was something that we worked out with um, Met's lawyers, Shermer's lawyers, uh, George Saunders lawyers. It, there were a lot of like very intense yeah. conversations, even though, you know, in the end, like George, you know, he was very much on board and very, mm-hmm. very excited about it and has been like a huge champion. Um, I just saw him two nights ago. He was reading for his new book in New York and was just so excited about the idea of this being an opera. And he said that he, when he was writing the book, he was imagining it as an opera actually. He's like, but I don't write operas, I write books. So I was wow. like, oh, I write operas, great. You know, <laughs> so it was it really like an effortless collaboration, but like all that other, the paperwork is vast. Oh yes, <laughs> horrendous. But you got there and we very much look forward to that. So um, I suppose that's a good place to draw a line as we look mm-hmm. towards your opera in, when is it, 25? Yes, it will premiere in fall of 25. Well, what a treat to get to see you and talk to you, Missy. Um, yeah, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. 